uh, been working our, through in no, our way through the Ten Commandments in no particular order, starting with thou shalt not covet, and God's call for us to not be um, always looking at what God is doing in other people's lives jealously, but to just receive the life he's given us and to say, God, would you fill my life full of your glory as I trust in you? Uh, we've looked at the first commandment that we would um, have no other gods and just heard God calling us to an amazing love relationship, which is really the best thing ever. Not, not, I may get stuck here, but seriously, if you're here, I want you to hear me. God's will for your life is that you would have an amazing love and loyalty-based relationship with him. And that's why it's ruined when we take our love and our trust and we give it to something else that's not a God, because he's calling us through Jesus saying, I have loved you to the point of, of sending my son to die for you. And the best thing that can happen for you is to love me back in this life and all eternity. Heaven on earth is being in a uh, love relationship with God. And if you're a guy and it feels weird to hear that, uh, heaven on earth is being in a manly love relationship with God. Okay, there we go. No excuses. We've also looked at um, the, the commandment to remember the Sabbath and God's call for us to work by faith in Jesus Christ as well as to rest in Christ and to rest in life because of him. And now I want to um, pick up one of the more serious commandments and we're going to look at um, Exodus 20 verse 13, which is the command you shall not murder. So I'm going to read the word of God and then let's pray together. Exodus 20 verse 13, to read it again. God says, you shall not murder. And Hebrews chapter 10, starting verse 12, says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Father, I just come to, or come to you in prayer. I come to you for this message, God. This is a, a very serious topic, talking about murder. It's one of the worst things that can happen. And so, Lord, I just call on you for grace to be a good servant of your word through this and for us to hear this well. Father, I pray that you would work miracles and send your spirit amongst us as we hear your word with faith and as we talk about hard issues. Father, I pray that you would help us to yield our minds and our hearts to you. And Father, wherever anybody needs to meet Jesus, and we all do, but where we need to meet Jesus, I pray that, that uh, we would surrender to him, open our hearts, and... Um, get the grace of God that we need through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You shall not murder. So I want to start off by doing a Hebrew definition, and then I want to go to God's word to help us understand what he meant when he said, you shall not murder. If you remember, God has just rescued Israel from Egypt, where they lived for about 400 years, and they lived under another nation's laws. They were slaves in Egypt, and so Pharaoh was boss, and they were living under the Egyptian law. And now as they're being rescued from Egypt, it's not just like they're being led out into the desert to do whatever they want. They're being brought out to actually start a nation. And so God gives them these Ten Commandments, and some of them have to do about their relationship with God, about loving him and not having other gods. Some of them deal with real core heart issues, like you shall not covet, which is not something that you can um, write laws about and send police out to police very easily, right? That's a heart issue. You can't police it. Um, God forbid the day when the RCMP shows up at your house and says, 
Yeah, we caught you on one of our traffic cams. Uh, you were doing a side log glance at the uh, red Ferrari driving by. It looked like you're pretty jealous, so here's a $50 fine. Like, that's a heart issue. You can't police coveting. But God can see it, and so in that sense, God um, is our judge, and we're accountable to him as our Heavenly Father who wants us to walk in freedom and not in the bondage of wishing we had somebody else's life. But there are other commands which are really just commands about um, nationhood and how to live together. And one of the most common laws in the entire world throughout all human history has been that you can't murder people. And uh, so let's look at the Hebrew. In Hebrew, this verse is just two words, if memory serves me well, and I think it does. Lo ratzak. Lo ratzak. Lo means um, no and... um, or sorry, lo yertzak. Sorry, I, I messed it up a little bit there. Lo means not or no, and yertzak means you shall not. Um, and that word, ratzak, is pretty specific. There are lo- there's lots of Hebrew r- words that have to do with killing. There's a specific one to do with if you're going to sacrifice an animal, you're going to kill it for sacrifice. There's a specific word for that. There's a word that's just kind of generally killing. Um, there's a few different words that kind of highlight different things. And ratzak highlights um, the act of taking an innocent life. That's really the best translation for it. You shall not take innocent life. So it highlights that innocence of a human life. And so areas you won't find this word used is if you won't, wouldn't find this word used for killing an animal. Okay, If you're sacrificing an animal or killing an animal, they would never use that word because an animal is kind of just an animal. It's not a human being. It's not a moral agent. God doesn't have a judgment for donkeys at the end of history where he'll choose if they go to donkey heaven or donkey um, tribulation or whatever it is. It's just an animal. So it doesn't have this like innocence or guilt aspect about it really. And you wouldn't find it used for killing in war because war is typically understood to be something a little bit different than just somebody trying to kill somebody. Like there's an invasion and so people are either defending themselves, they take up arms and it's a, it's a contest of, of military might, but people aren't committing crimes against each other. Now, you can commit war crimes, and so I'm not talking about that, but just, you know, when there's an invasion from another army, if all of us ran to Canadian Tire and bought a bunch of guns and just started firing them off at that line of people running at us, um, you typically wouldn't get hauled into jail for murder after that because we just understood it was a nation-against-nation war, and the rules are a little bit different there. But you would find it used for murder and other things. And so I want to take us through a series of situations in the Old Testament to help us understand this, because it does matter for us. We're we're still living in God's world, and so how God thinks about these things is how he thinks about these things. And so we're, we, we should think about them the same way God does. This call, you shall not murder, or more specifically, you shall not take innocent life, which includes things like murder, manslaughter, as well as negligence, as well as a heart that just uh, wishes people didn't exist. So let's start with this co- a concept called blood guilt, okay? Blood guilt. It's an idea that when someone's innocent blood is shed, there is a guilt about it that either a person or a people um, can receive, and they need to do something about it. And what God is communicating through this idea is that when a human being dies um, and they're innocent, from, they're not dying from a crime or something like that, there needs to be a response because human beings are important. And so let me read you a long passage from Deuteronomy 21, 
verses 1 to 9, and it's going to kind of show us that the death of a human being matters and people need to take responsibility for it. So Moses writes this, If in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess, they're about to go into Israel, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him. So we know that somebody killed him, but we don't know who did it or how it happened. There's no CSI team that can come in and dust for prints. It's just somebody's been murdered and we don't know anything about it. Then your elders and your judges shall come out and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither uh, plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck in that valley. Then the priest, the sons of the Levi, of Levi, sorry, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, so that their blood guilt may be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of the innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So this this would be, I think, might be a challenging verse for us. Okay, so what he's saying there is, the, remember, they lived in Old Testament times. They didn't have roads. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the kind of technology we did. So all of a sudden, somebody's wandering around their field, their farmland, and they realize that there's somebody um, dead in their field and their skull's been caved in. So it's not just like grandpa... Benjamin had a heart attack or something like that. Like, they've been killed. And there's, they just have no clue who did it. And so what happens is they, they, they are being told, you still have to take responsibility for this person's death. And for us individualistic Western types, we would just think, well, it wasn't me, so call the police, take the body away, but whatever. Maybe there'll be an investigation, but I'm not responsible for this. And just this sense, like, if I didn't do it, I'm not responsible for it. But what God said is saying is that somebody is responsible for this before me because I do not ignore when innocent life is taken. That's got what God is communicating to them. I don't ignore whenever innocent life is taken. So first you find out which city is the closest city, whether it's Zoda or Zummerfelders or if that's even a place, or um, I think the church. Anyhow, or Steinbeck or Creek, whoever's closest, their, their most responsible people, their elders, have to come out and they have to um, make a sacrifice with the heifer in a valley where there's running water. I'm not exactly sure what the symbolism is. And they need to pray and say, God, we don't know who did it. We can't solve it. It would be unjust for us to just go and kill somebody else. So we need your forgiveness. Please don't hold us accountable for the innocent life taken here. And God's communicating to them that human life is so important that he always cares when, it's, when innocent life is taken. And otherwise, there's this sense of blood guilt. When it's just ignored, there's lingering blood guilt where it's like nothing. God's just saying, I, I'm going to explain a bit more. So we can see this concept in the first murder that did happen. I want to talk about murder first because that's the most obvious way that innocent life is taken when somebody intentionally takes it away. And that's what a murder is. Somebody intentionally takes somebody else's life. Um, first degree murder in Canadian law, as I understand it, is when you kind of plan ahead. You go to the, buy the poison and then you figure out which meal to feed it to. And 
Beatrice or whatever it is, you know, because she's rich and you're not and you think you're in the will and whatever. It's planned out and it's premeditated. Second degree murder is not premeditated. You never meant to kill them. You weren't intending to, but you got into a big fight and in that fight you strangled them. That's, that's, you didn't premeditate it, but you still intended it. It's still murder. And the first uh, murder happens very, very, very early in human history. It's, it's actually like the second recorded sin in the Bible. The first recorded sin is our first parents. And I do believe that they are our first parents. I don't think it's a metaphor. Um, most of the theology of salvation falls apart if you start thinking like that, which is important to me. Uh, so I do think that they did, and they ate, a, they ate a forbidden fruit. And they got kicked out of the garden. And then the next recorded sin in the Bible is that one of their sons killed the other one of their sons. Okay, so what God is telling us through this story is that sin is out of control. Nobody can control sin. You can't have a little sin. Sin grows like a weed and it is an all-consuming fire. And so it's crazy that the second sin in the Bible is a murder. It's a cold-blooded, premeditated, hey, let's go out to the field where I can hide the body, murder. And this blood guilt is right there in the beginning of Genesis because you will recall when God confronts Cain and says, hey, where's your brother? And Cain says something along the lines of, I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't keep tabs on him. I don't have like a Bluetooth fob that I track his, what's, like where's my iPhone thing on him? And the heart issue being like pretending like he's not really my responsibility. And the Lord says, what have you done? Your the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. That's an amazing statement that God would say. He's saying, your brother's shed blood is calling out for justice. I hear it. He's like, when I came and asked you where Abel was, it wasn't because I didn't know. I was giving you a chance to confess, and you're like, I don't know where he is. And God's saying, I will always know where he is because his blood that the ground drank calling out for me to do something. And so this is what our God is like. This is before the Old Testament. This is right at the beginning of time. This is how he deals with people in general. When innocent blood is shed, God hears it, crying out to him. Throughout all the world, throughout all of time. And there's this idea of blood guilt. And um, shedding of blood is so important that it's actually the main reason for the flood. You might remember the flood from Genesis where God sends a worldwide flood that um, wipes out almost all human life. And if you read the Bible closely, you'll see that the reason God sent the flood was because the earth was filled with violence. People found that murdering people was a really handy way of dealing with problems. They've got stuff you want. They got in a fight with you. They insulted you. And so God was just... um, the shed blood, essentially, that was shed through all this violence and murder is calling out for justice, and so he washes it away with a worldwide flood. But after the flood is over, God, in his wisdom, knowing that he hasn't actually definitively dealt with sin yet um, and can't just flood the world every few years, he changes how um, murder is going to be addressed in the world. And so he institutes what we would call capital punishment, which would be having... Um, some kind of authority or some kind of government which would um, rightfully kill those who wrongfully kill. They would innocently kill those who kill the innocent. And so in verse 9, chapter 9, starting in verse 4 of Genesis, God is talking about how um, he, he commands the people not to eat blood that's in the body of things because that's where the life is. And he says, you shall not eat flesh with its life in it, that is its blood. 
And for your lifeblood, meaning human lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it, and from man. So even animals that kill people, God hears the blood of those killed people crying out against those animals. And he says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning from the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And in that verse, we see why human life is so important. You know, we say yet life is sacred, and that's mostly true, but life isn't inherently sacred. Human life is sacred because God made us in his image. That's why we're so important. God made something in the world that... um, looks like an an infinite spirit made into a tiny little mud being with calcium bones and all the other little bits and pieces and minerals that go into making us. But he made this thing that he says, that's me. That's what I look like. That's what I am like. And so when somebody attacks the image of God, God um, receives it as an attack on himself. And when somebody murders the image of God, God receives that as an attempted murder on himself. It's kind of like, um, you know, if somebody put pictures of, we're having an election or something, and somebody put pictures up on the highway, I think this did happen, and somebody gets out there with a can of spray paint and makes them look like some sinister guy with a goatee and a curly mustache or whatever. Um, that's not just them doing art, and it's not just them defacing a poster. It's an attack on that person, because that's the image of that person. When you deface that, that person can rightfully say, I'm being attacked there, because that's a picture of me. And in the same sense, when somebody attacks innocent life in that is the image of god god says you're attacking me and you may remember on the damascus road when paul is going around persecuting christians and jesus confronts paul and strikes him blind and says why are you persecuting me because those other christians are the image bearers of christ and so when he attacks christians he says leave me alone because they're my image bearers i identify with them In the same way, because uh, people are made in the image of God, we can be entrusted with God with the act of um, accomplishing justice in the world. So it works both ways. Number one, we're in the image of God, so our innocent lives are worth defending. And number two, we're made in the image of God, so God can task us with maintaining justice when it comes to things like murder. Uh, Which brings me to two things. We live in a world that is very weird in our current culture, and we can't quite figure out whether or not human lives are important. Uh, so more recently, they, people have been developing this technology where you can take a, a protein, a, a, a meat protein, and replicate it in a laboratory and make like a Petri dish full of protein. Like, and then if you put that on a barbecue, it's supposed to be like a hamburger patty or something like that. And they're, they're getting better at this. The idea being that now we can save all the animals because now we can just make in a laboratory all the burgers you'll ever meet. I'm sorry, it's going to taste disgusting forever. But anyhow, that's off the point. So the reason they're doing that is because they've lost the sense of the image of God. And so there's people who think that there is no difference between a cow and a human being because we're all just matter. And one day a big explosion happened and some of the stuff that came out of the explosion became a sun and some of the stuff became a person. And some of it became a cat and some of it became salt. And we all just stardust. And so why, why should, is it okay to eat a cow? Now, um, fame, famed anti-theist Richard Dawkins was also hoping that someday we would take human protein and replicate it in a lab so that we can actually start eating human 
proteins um, instead of animal proteins. And, and his hope was that we would get rid of this whole like thing against cannibalism. Because his idea being that like we're not that special, we're just chemicals, we're, we're not made in the image of God, and so if we found a way to make human flesh in a laboratory, it'd be really cool to start eating it so that we got rid of this whole idea like it's bad to eat people. That's his thinking, because he actually believes what he thinks, that we're all just stardust and there isn't any real meaning in life, and so if you can make a laboratory that clones baby flesh, you can eat it. On the other hand, there are things like school shootings, where people, uh, students, ex-students go into schools and shoot up their ex-classmates and kill bunches of them, which become a total media outrage that lasts for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks because it's just so wrong to um, shoot, shoot people to death. So which one is it, right? Are people made in the image of God and murdering them is wrong or not? Would Richard Dawkins go and eat the remains of some of those kids who were killed? Because they're already dead. As Christians, we start off with there is a God. He made us in his image. And therefore, human life is inherently different than everything else. Because it's made in God's image. And God tells us that means that our blood must never be shed when it's innocent. But on the other hand, it can be shed when it's guilty. Now, let, let me talk about innocent for a sec, because there is a sense in which nobody's innocent. Scripture is really clear about that. In, before God, nobody can walk into the throne room of God and say, I'm perfectly innocent. You've got, I've got nothing I need forgiven for. Where's my gold star and my lifetime to supply of Twinkies? Nobody is innocent before God, and God repeatedly tells us that. He's like, if I want to, I can call anybody into my throne room and find things wrong with them all day. So you need mercy, not justice. On the other hand, on the horizontal plane, when it comes to people like that, like us and how we live our lives, there is a much, there's a huge, 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 huge difference between somebody who just pays their taxes and drives the speed limit and takes care of their family and a mass murderer, right? So I'm talking about that innocent on the, the people plane. Nobody's totally innocent before God. We do need, live off of his mercy and his forgiveness, but we can be innocent of murder or guilty of murder and things like that. Um, when people commit mass murders, one of the things that comes up is the conversation about capital punishment, whether it's moral. And w- one of the w- interesting things about our culture is that though we find it easy to kill some people like preborn children, we, we also say it's immoral to do things like kill people who kill lots of people. Like it would be immoral to execute this person um, who committed that latest mass shooting in Florida. I think they are trying to get the, the death penalty for him. And there's a group of people who say, that's wrong, it's immoral, maybe it's fighting fire with fire or violence with violence or something like that. Um, But scripturally and biblically, it's not immoral to bring about capital punishment on somebody who um, kills people. And one of the things that happens, I think, is that when, when, when people kind of just reject the logic of scripture, is that what happens is that the life of human beings becomes very, 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 uh, very diminished, like... The question would be, how many people do you have to kill before you're worthy of not being around here anymore? Is it 50? Is it 100? Do you have to exterminate an entire people group before you're, it's worthy to be the death penalty or something? And scripturally, it's just one. It's just one human being that you really meant to, to murder that... that that is like, yeah, because a human life is worth so much. It's not about vengeance in particular. 
It's not about... Um, that's the first thing. A human life is worth so much that if you rob somebody of their life, the only thing that you can do back, the only like just thing is to say, okay, it's, it's over for you. And that assumes, of course, fair trial and um, good evidence and, and really knowing it. Um, apart from our eternal souls, what will happen to us after we die? Our life is the most precious thing we have. It's just your beating heart and your functioning brain is your most precious thing that you have apart from your eternal life. And so for somebody to just be willing to take that away from you because of anger or greed or something, that that person is justly stopped. And the other thing, that reason why it's actually, I think, can be just to have capital punishment is that people who so cross the line into mass killings and stuff like that, they very, very rarely um, become incapable of doing it again. So they could get out of jail and do it again, or they could murder a guard, or they could murder another person who's in jail but not necessarily on death row, and they're still dangerous. And there is a sense, like, if, if you don't stop somebody who's capable of doing these terrible things, then you're partially responsible for what they do, and that we'll get to that in a second. Okay, so we've talked about blood guilt, which has led us to talking about murder. Um, the scripture also talks about this thing called manslaughter, which is where your behavior results in somebody dying, but you didn't actually mean for it to happen. Okay, murder, murder emphasizes the intentionality of somebody dying. Manslaughter emphasizes that you didn't actually mean for it to happen. And so scripture talks about some, a situation like this. Numbers 25, 22 through 28. He's just talking about intentionally killing somebody, but now it's going to talk about the other one. He says, if he suddenly, uh, sorry, if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him with outlying in wait, or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died though he was not his enemy and did not seek him harm then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood so this is what it's talking about in accordance with these rules he's saying he's saying there's going to be situations in life where somebody's dead but it wasn't a murder they they were um tussling maybe they did get in a fist fight or something and he hit him and it was just the wrong hit and he went down. I never meant to hurt him. I never met the guy before. Um, he hit me first. What do you do? Um, you throw a rock at somebody uh, and you kill him by accident. Um, you, you didn't hate them. Okay, a bunch of teenagers out on one of those overpasses and they dropped, there was this case where they're dropping like frozen turkeys off of overpasses and hitting cars with frozen turkeys and stuff like that. And this one lady almost died. Because it hit her in the head. Like she was driving through and... Okay, were they trying to kill somebody? Not really. Should they have known that they were going to? You bet. So if she had died, that would have been manslaughter. Okay, they didn't hate her. They weren't trying to kill her. But boy, oh boy, you could have thought about it. And so scripture says that in a case like manslaughter, that innocent life taken still counts. And you don't just walk away from it. Like, I didn't mean to. Sorry, I'm out of here. It says, and the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood and the congregation shall restore him to a city of refuge which he has fled to and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who is anointed who was anointed with holy oil and what what was happening there was in order to deal with these cases of 
manslaughter where somebody's dead and people want justice for that death. They're the Avengers. They want justice. Hey, my uncle is dead or my brother is dead and we want to kill this guy because he did it, but he didn't mean to do it. The person who caused the death really didn't mean to do it. What they, what the effect was is that they had to go and hide in a city of refuge until the high priest died. And what you get there is you get a picture of um, kind of being covered by by someone else's life. If they leave, on the other hand, then, then the Avenger blood can kill them, but they have to hide in this city of refuge until the high priest dies. And so there is this con- consequence. The price of costing innocent life for the manslayer was that their entire life had to move to a city of refuge until the high priest died for them. Remind you of the gospel at all. This is a picture of the gospel. Here's this person who's committed a great sin. They don't just get away from it. They have to go and find their security and their rescue in a city of refuge until the high priest dies for their sins, which would cause the atonement for it. And after the high priest dies, then they can go free. But they're not innocent, and they don't just walk away from it because innocent life matters. That's what the scripture is trying to say. So more recently, we've had a case... Um, I think it was in Saskatchewan where, uh, you know, some of the details I'm sure were protected by the court process and the deliberation of the... The jury is definitely protected from being shared, um, but there was a farmer and I think a bunch of kids came onto his, or teenagers came onto his property, probably for bad reasons. And as he was confronting them, because he lives like two hours away from any police showing up, um, he shot one of them to death. So he's confronting them with a gun. And he said it was by accident or it got discharged on its own. And so with, uh, let's just take that as a hypothetical situ- situation. In um, God's law from the Old Testament, he was found not guilty, and I think he's just kind of walked away from it. He didn't mean to shoot, shoot the guy or kill him, so not guilty, walking away from it. In God's way, the, the importance of that person's innocent life, they hadn't done anything deserving death, so they might have been doing something bad. There should have still been some kind of consequence. Um, because, yeah, he didn't mean to do it, but you pointed a gun at somebody and you you killed somebody who was not, uh, probably not deserving it. So I don't know if it would be like a fine or what here, or or even just like community service or what, but uh, we're not set up in our justice system for something like that, I don't think. Uh, Somebody will probably correct me after the message today, but... Just this sense, like, yeah, okay, you didn't mean to do it, and you're not a murderer, but something huge happened here, and we can't walk away from the fact that an innocent life um, is, is gone. Um, there are other further cases of things like negligence. So there was murder where there's lots of intentionality. There's negligence, sorry, uh, manslaughter where there's no intentionality. And negligence is where thoughtlessness leads to a loss of innocent life. Thoughtlessness leads to a loss of innocent life. So here's a situation from Old Testament times that probably nobody here would have to deal with. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. So here's the situation. People, some of the farmers in the Old Testament would have oxes. They were like the biggest, strongest tractor available for all the farm work. But unlike uh, modern day John Deere, those oxes would sometimes get in a really bad attitude and just go after things sometimes. They just, you know, the hormones get out of whack or what, and they would just attack something and typically oxes would have big horns and people could die 
And so what they're saying here is, here's an innocent situation. Everybody knows oxes can sometimes go crazy. And so if this is the first time an ox has ever done anything bad and it hurts somebody, um, you kill the ox because because God requires a reckoning for that innocent blood. But the owner's okay. It says, but if the ox had been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner had been warned and has not kept it penned in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. Yikes! That's one where we might find, ah, what are you talking about? The idea here being like, look, if you own an ox, you know you have a dangerous animal. It can kill people. And if it has been in the habit of goring things, it gored a dog, or it gored another ox, or it it used to chase the kids down the street. If you knew it was like that, but you didn't chain it up or keep it um, penned in, and somebody got hurt, then that's negligence and you did not care about somebody else's innocent life to the point that they were dead, they're now dead and now you're responsible for that. Does that make sense? It seems like you're just reading about oxes, but this is stuff we deal with. Like we, we can do stuff like this. We can be uh, responsible for people getting hurt because we never ask the question, can somebody get hurt with my car? Can somebody else get hurt with my house, my swimming pool? Like why, do, why is there a law that you have to have a fence around your swimming pool? Because little kids can get in that swimming pool and they can drown. And you can get held accountable because it would be negligent to not protect against the fact that little kids go wandering and they like pools and many of them don't know how to swim. And so Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet, which is a fence, for your roof, that you may not bring blood guilt onto your house if anyone should fall from it. So in the Old Testament times and in many places in the world, they would, when they build a roof, they would build it flat because then you could go hang out on the roof. And you may remember Peter in the book of Acts. He's praying on a roof and God had, gives him this great vision. Peter wasn't kind of just holding on to the asphalt sing, shingles and not, trying not to slide down because we have these pitched roofs so that things can go off of it because we get so much rain and so much snow. When you live in places where you don't have that much rain and snow, a flat roof is a great idea for just hanging out and partying and prayer time and whatever. But if you have a roof that's flat and people hang out on it and you don't have any fence around it, people can fall off fairly predictably. Like you don't have to have an IQ of 120 to think my three-year-old's going to be dancing around and he's going to push the four-year-old off. That's, that's, that's like, you do, it doesn't take much to think about it. And so God who, is trying, who says to us, you shall not take innocent life, is also like the, the thou shalt not becomes, you shall protect innocent life. We've talked about how sometimes a negative command can get turned into a positive command. You shall not take innocent life, but you shall protect innocent life. And so we should be thinking about, how can I protect people? So I was working on this message, and, and I, so I just like, okay, I've got to do something. And so I came over to the church and grabbed our big bucket of that cool, blue, salty, gritty stuff and just went to town on the driveway over at the church house where my office is because the thing is like an ice sheet by the front door. And you know what? People can come for a visit and end up with a broken arm, right? And if I walk over that every day and I'm too lazy to get the salt, that's negligence. I I would be responsible. Yeah, that person wasn't very um, athletic and they, they slipped. And if they'd done some more gymnastics as a kid, I'm sure they could have caught themselves. On the other hand, I could have thought about the fact that my driveway is covered in ice and people fall on ice. And it would have been on me. And so there you go. Negligence. And this is interesting because we know from Scripture that God is sovereign. Like, he really does rule over the details of life. He says, um, the lot is cast into the lap, 
but it's every outcome is from the Lord. Like you go to Vegas and all those people are getting robbed by the one-armed bandit all day long with their cigarette in their left hand and their free cocktail in their right hand and pulling that thing as their kid's inheritance goes down into the slot machine. And every time those numbers come up, God decided what those numbers should be. That's what scripture teaches. On the other hand, he also says to us human beings, accidents happen. And you should live like you know accidents happen and care about other people's innocent lives. That they don't fall on your driveway or something like that. Now you can go overboard here. If we really wanted to stop people from dying, we could make the speed limit in every place 10 miles an hour. Like we could do that. And do you know how many car accidents would just not happen? You can go overboard. But the reason we have speed limits is because many people would drive 250 kilometers an hour to Winnipeg and either kill themselves or other people. And uh, so there you go. It's not a bad thing. Now, these things are kind of areas of law, and these are kinds of things that you might get called into court about. But Jesus also taught us that the Ten Commandments had a shallow meaning and a deeper meaning. We've talked about this before, right? There's a shallow meaning, which is kind of what you get when you just read it. Okay, you shall not murder. Great. Doing great. Don't even own a gun. And uh, if I'm angry, I just take it out on the punching bag. So I think I'm good. not planning on murdering anybody. But when Jesus was on the earth and he was teaching the, the Sermon on the Mount, he took that commandment and he took it right down into the very depths of people's hearts and he made it an issue about anger instead of just about bloodshed so he says in matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 26 he says you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder so he's quoting exodus chapter 20 here and yes and amen and whoever murders will be liable to judgment that's right that's exactly what we're talking about But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Uh, And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Double up. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. Okay, just remember, think about your last week of driving by yourself and that time you got cut off. What were you thinking, you idiot? Just hear the flame. Oh, uh, hmm. Uh. And it's funny, I, t- I told the first service, I was like, I don't know if I need to apologize because I don't preach like this. You know, it's like, so you're angry? Well, enjoy hell. Because I, I back off from talking like Jesus sometimes. Maybe we need to take back some of that worship we gave him. It's like, um, so, but so Jesus goes on there and he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be first reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your, offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. And truly I say, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. So this is some of the most severe speech from Jesus in the entire Bible, and it's about anger. And he starts off and he says, Yeah, I know you've been told not to murder, and I know you all think you're doing great, but let me take it where the real heart is. The real heart issue is your anger. 
And if you're angry at your brother, you're in real trouble. And so you need to deal with this decisively as quickly as possible. And so I've been thinking about this because I want to draw the connection. Okay, it's great that Jesus says this, but I like to understand as well. And I think this is the issue. Um, typically when we're angry at people, and this is unrighteous anger, there is such a thing as righteous anger. You know, if you uh, find out that your kids are being bullied at school and one of them comes home with a black eye, it's right to be angry. Like that's not right and not fair. And you can get angry about that. This is kind of an unrighteous anger at your brother. Um, Typically when we have unrighteous anger, the core problem is um, you are doing something that makes me wish you weren't in my world. Does that make sense? I'm angry because your behavior and your presence is messing up my plans, my thing. I got, I got, this, plan, I got this plan for nice, peace, happy time, and every day like Paradiso, every day so nice, and then your behavior and your needs and your thing are just ruining my, my world here, and so I'm angry at you because my world is being messed up. Right? That's kind of, that, that can be the heart issue for anger. You're ruining my plans for my life. And if you take that all the way to the fullest extension, how do you get rid of somebody who is ruining your plans for your day? Well, you could kill them. Because then they can't do anything to ruin your plans for your day anymore, right? That's the, that's the, the end point of that wishing someone would just go away. And so that's the connection. Jesus says, yeah, you guys, you know you're going to go to jail if you keep murdering each other, so you don't do it. But the heart issue is you are, just wish other people would go away so that your life was more convenient and easy instead of loving them. And that's why you're in so much trouble. Amen? And the re- part of the reason why I think this is the right way of reading it is how Jesus tells people to deal with their um, anger issue. And yes, it's going to involve confessing it to Jesus. And yes, it's going to involve confessing it to a brother and sister so that you're walking in the light and getting the power of God in your life by humbling yourself instead of deciding I'm going to do this all by myself and I'm going to add pride on top of my pride until I have a humongous pride sandwich and I'm going to choke to death on trying to eat that thing because it's got no mayonnaise and it's super dry and not very flavorful either. Either He doesn't say, he, those are all good things, but this, the real um, anger wishing you didn't exist attitude jesus confronts he says he says if you're you're going to go worship god you know saturday night and you remember your brother has something against you go and deal with it and as you would read this i think i've shared this before but as you read this naturally you'd say okay jesus is talking about my anger so the next thing he's going to say is if i'm angry at somebody i should forgive them Right? I should forgive them. Right? That's, I'm angry. I need to let it go. I need to let them go. But he doesn't say that. What he says is, you're angry, and so I want you to think if your brother has something against you. What? Yeah, you're angry at them, so now you need to ask the question, how have I been treating them? What? And the, the reason I think that works is because when Jesus changes the subject, because when you're angry at somebody, it's, it's me time, right? It's me time. You're, you're at the slot machine of life with your cigarette in one hand and your free beverage in the other, and it's all about me, and you're just waiting to hit the jackpot of happiness. Me, 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 me. And we're angry because somebody's getting in the way of what I want. And Jesus says all of a sudden, why don't you think about it from the other person's perspective? Maybe they have something against you, and you're not even thinking about it. Maybe you're a jerk. I'm going to assume no until proven by a court of law with two or three witnesses that I'm not a jerk. But actually, Jesus says, why don't you consider their life, their innocent life, as important and ask if you have been mistreating them before you are 
consumed with whether they're mistreating you. And if we get there, we've actually totally diffused murder in our hearts. We will not have murderous hearts if we are first asking if we're treating other people right and not asking if they're treating us the way we want. Does that make sense? Okay, you guys are doing great. More than you ever wanted to know about this subject. Now, as we grow to be like God and this, the implications for you shall not take innocent life and you shall guard innocent life get worked into us more and more and more, God works us into a people who become really attuned with protecting the innocent. So Proverbs 24, and still we're still in the Old Testament. Isn't this great? Proverbs 24, uh, I think it's Solomon says this, but it could be the words of the wise. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling towards slaughter. If you say, look, I did not know this was happening. Doesn't he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? And so what the, the, the sage is saying here is, as we come to know God, God is calling us not to just say, I'm innocent, but to actually say, like, my job is to be on the lookout for somebody who might need an intervention because their life is precious. He says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling towards the slaughter. The picture is of somebody who's just so out of touch with reality that they're just, they're just like weaving and diving towards a wood chipper. And you could say, people make choices. But God says, you could have chose to try to tackle them out of the way. And you didn't. And that's my issue with you right now. And this does matter because we do live in a world where people are murdered every day in Canada. And the correlation with that as well is that people are committing murder and adding up their guilt before God every day. And the correlation before, but with that is that Canada is building up blood guilt before the Lord every day. And the blood of all these little babies cry out to him and he hears it all. So it does matter. And it drives us to do things like care about the poor. So the children's ministry has um, gathered together enough funds through the children and probably a few parents, wink, wink, way to go, for 155 health cards, which means 155 families will get health care in Rwanda. And we don't know that somebody's life isn't going to be saved because of that. But that's why we do it. That is, you shall not take innocent life in action. The kids might have saved somebody's life by gathering together these dollars. Think about it. Some innocent kid with an infection or with malaria or something, getting the medicine they need because they, they've got the card and alive because of something we're doing here, which is kind of why we do it. So good job, kids. But let's take all these things that we've learned and try to apply it to the gospel. You're doing great. Because up to now, you know, it has just been law. What, what's God's standards? 
And um, if you've never actually killed somebody or tried to, you've probably been angry at somebody in an unrighteous way. And if Jesus says it is true that we're in danger of the fires of hell from thinking, from saying you fool at somebody, um, we need rescue. So how does the command, you shall not murder, connect with the rescue that God has provided for us through Jesus? Well, this is the truth. Every single one of us who's come to Jesus Christ has been saved by a murder. Have you ever thought about that before? It's a hard thought to think, but it is true. The reason we come and say, sing about our slain God, who is our forgiver and our rescuer and our friend, he was slain by murder. He didn't have an accident, and it wasn't negligence, and it wasn't cancer, and it wasn't um, a car crash. He was wrongfully captured, wrongfully tortured, wrongfully condemned, wrongfully crucified, and wrongfully killed. He was murdered by government. Some people murder with a sword. Some people murder with a knife. Some people murder with a gun. Some people poison. And some people use courtrooms to murder people because they're actually innocent. And Jesus was totally innocent. He was murdered by courtroom. But that murder is our salvation through faith. Because as I read to you before from Hebrews, the Bible takes that murder where the Son of God was murdered and it calls it a sacrifice. Somebody offering up their life in order to accomplish something. And it says by that single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is how it works. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, his murder counts as a sacrifice on your behalf. Your sins are covered. Your wrongdoings are forgiven. Your broken relationship with God has turned into a family relationship with him. You get filled with his Holy Spirit so that you have a new life to live out of it. You have the the trust that God, as you follow him, will use your life and make it count for the rest of the time you draw breath on earth. And then when you die, you get to go and be with Jesus in his presence instead of to a place of punishment. And you get to come back with him and live forever on a new heaven and a new earth by grace. And the only thing you need to do to have all of that is to put your loving loyalty in Jesus, to trust him, to have faith in him, scripture says. And that's all possible by the worst murder that ever happened in human history, which is crazy. And let me take this a little deeper because there is a reason why I'm kind of forcing this on us. Um, I regularly meet people who are Christians or not Christians who are gripped by feeling like I've blown it, I'm too guilty, I'm too messy, I'm too broken, I'm too messed up. God can't rescue me. God can't save me. God can't treasure me. Maybe I'm saved. Maybe he'll let me go to heaven, but actually be treasured, actually like me, actually want to be near me, actually give me a great relationship with him. No, that's too much. I'd be happy just to go to heaven when I die, even if that, but I'm not sure because I'm too bad. And what I I want to draw your attention to is the only hope anybody has of being saved is through the worst thing ever. Israel and Rome conspiring together to kill God to murder God's son. That is literally the worst thing that any human being could do would be to go, I want to kill the son of God and then to do it. That's the worst, messiest, most horrible, most demonic, most hellish, most guilty thing ever. 
And so if God, by his power and his grace and his wisdom, can take literally the most horrendous murder ever, and that is the glory of God on the cross, that is our hope that our sins are forgiven and we have new life, if he can do that through the murder of Christ, you and I surely are not so far gone that we get to tell God what he can't do with us. Amen? He literally has saved murderers and given them great relationships with him. They didn't necessarily get out of jail, but he literally does save people who are the worst of the worst of the worst. So I want to speak to that part of your heart that wants to live on the outskirts of Christianity or the outskirts of church, on the outskirts of faith, because you are really sick of yourself. And I just want to say, that's okay. Because God can take murder, which is the worst thing, and he can make that salvation. So just look to Jesus and don't count him out and surrender to him and give yourself to him again because God can do anything with anything. He's proven it. This this terrible orchestrated murder is what we sing about. We worship. It's been worshiped for 2,000 years. This horrendous murder. God is the has the power and the wisdom to make the best thing ever. And so I want you, Christian, I want you to look to Jesus and just start getting sick of every excuse you have not to run to Jesus and come all the way in and give him your whole life because he has not left us with any excuse to live on the outskirts. He murdered his son so that we could see the wisdom and power of God is capable of any kind of salvation in any kind of situation. And we think this is for other people or people in the Bible or the Apostle Paul because he's a bit of a nut job. No, it's for you because you will do things if you haven't already that make you want to wish you were never alive or wish you were just gone or wish wish or just think now it's over and god's going to quit on me no 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 he saves us by murder this is crazy except it's true it's all true it's a hundred percent true right down to the footnotes well maybe not the footnotes so i'm just i'm pleading with you christian i'm pleading with you christian whatever that thing is in your heart that makes you hang out at the back in your heart. I'm not saying people at the back are like that, but you know what I mean by that. (laughs) Hanging out at the back in your heart. God God has executed all of our excuses not to run to Jesus. He put those excuses on the cross and he executed them publicly. And he says all of our excuses for hanging back from Jesus are dead. They were rightfully executed. It wasn't a murder. It wasn't an innocent life taken. It was like those things are guilty and they need to die. And he killed them in Christ. So won't you come on in? Won't you come all the way into Jesus? Won't you come all the way home? Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you for these truths. Heavy, weighty, powerful, and good. God, you're the most amazing and I love you. And God, I pray you do everything necessary in every heart here that we'd come all the way into full joyful faith in Christ. Amen.